And this is our final uh, sermon in our Essentials series. Next week, we start a series on James, the book of James. Nine weeks through the summer, going to be digging into the wonderful book of James. Lots of stuff in there for us. But today we close out our Essentials series by looking at our ordinances. Uh, we believe the Lord Jesus gave two ordinances to the church, water baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so I want to give you some basic definitions as we start, and then we'll dig into these a little deeper. But first, an ordinance is an authoritative order or command. We baptize people, we observe the Lord's Supper, because Jesus Christ has all authority in heaven and earth, and he told us that's what we're supposed to do. And so we obey the order. Baptism is immersion underwater as an expression of a person's faith in Jesus Christ. You take a new believer, you get a tank or pool of water like we got over here, you put them in it, you dunk them all the way down, and you bring them back up. Okay? And you, bringing them back up is always a crucial part of that process. Okay? That's an oldie, but it works every time. Communion is believers sharing bread and drink in remembrance of Christ's death on the cross. So this is our doctrinal statement on water baptism. Following faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the convert is commanded by the Word of God to be baptized by immersion underwater in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptism gets its meaning and importance from the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and his triumph over death through his resurrection. Baptism has meaning and importance because the death burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is infinitely important. Okay? We're not simply talking about religious ritual or church tradition here. We're talking about Christ's magnificent work of salvation in dying for our sins and rising from the dead so that we're justified from our sins and providing us with the means of sanctification. When you talk about baptism, you're talking about the way that Jesus Christ has commanded us to express our faith in him. So what do we believe about baptism? Well, number one, baptism is an ordinance of the Lord. Uh, Jesus ordained it as an ongoing practice of the church. Uh, He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Make disciples is the thrust of the Great Commission. The way you make disciples is baptizing and teaching. Baptizing and teaching. And we're to do this uh, for all nations. And the time frame is defined by the promise of Christ's health. He says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He promises to help us baptize and teach as long as this age lasts. So Christ commands baptism to be done to every believer, everywhere, all the time. No exceptions. Every believer, everywhere, all the time. Say that with me. Every believer, everywhere, all the time. That's how important baptism is. Number two, baptism expresses union with Christ. Clearest teaching on this, Romans 6, 3, and 4 says, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, 
just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Baptism expresses union with Christ. Now, it would be a mistake to say that water baptism is the means of having union with Christ. Faith is the means by which we're united with Christ. But we show this faith, we say this faith, we signify this faith, we symbolize this faith with the act of baptism. Faith unites us to Christ. Baptism expresses that union. You know, at a wedding, uh, we say, with this ring, I thee wed. But it's not the ring on the finger that makes you married. It's the decision, the commitment in your heart. It's the vows that you make. It's the vows that you keep that make you married. The ring is just an outward symbol of it. Same is true with baptism and faith. You know, the, the, the imagery of baptism is death, burial, and resurrection. Christ buried and raised to newness of life, and baptism dramatically portrays what happened spiritually when you got saved. Your old self of unbelief, disobedience, and rebellion and idolatry died. It's buried. And a new you, a person of faith and submission to Christ and obedience came into being. That's what you're expressing to the world. That's what you're expressing before heaven when you get baptized. That's why it's important. Number three, baptism is immersion in water. The word baptize, baptism, it's not an English word. It's a Greek word. But by the time the Bible was translated into English, 1,500 years after all this stuff was ordained and instituted by Christ, the word had become so connected to church practice that it, it, it had its own understanding. So they just carried the word out of the Greek over into the English. If they would have translated the word, they would have translated it Immerse, immersion, it means to dip. In, in the Greek, they used the word baptize to describe washing dishes. It was used to describe ships that sunk in the ocean. It was used to describe anything or anyone that was dunked completely underwater. So the word itself means to immerse. And Romans 6 describes the act of baptism as a burial and rising from the dead. And that's most naturally understood, that you're buried underwater, and then you come up out of the water to signify rising from the grave. And that imagery, we see it all the way through the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, in Acts 8, 37. Philip, one of the original 12 disciples, is riding in a chariot, sharing the gospel with an Ethiopian eunuch. And the man responds to the gospel, and then as they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here's water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. And those words, they went down into the water, makes the most sense if they're going down there to immerse him, not just sprinkle him. You don't have to go down into the water if all you're going to do is just sprinkle or pour some on his head. In John 3.23, it says, Now John also was baptizing at Enon near Salim because there was plenty of water there. You don't need plenty of water if all you're going to do is just sprinkle people. All you need is a jar. 
So the early church, we see this terminology all the way through the early church. They're immersing the new believer underwater to signify his burial and resurrection with Jesus Christ. Uh, Number four, baptism is in the Trinitarian name. Baptism is to be done in the name. And notice it says the name, not the names. Because that speaks to the unity of the Trinity. We baptize in the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There's no salvation without the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When we call on their name, we depend upon them, we honor them, we say that this act is because of them, it's by them, it's for them. The name is very important. Number five, baptism is for believers only. Baptism is an expression of faith only for believers. It's not something that an unbeliever can do. Frankly, an unbeliever cannot be baptized. I don't care if they even get in the tank. All they're doing is getting wet. They're not getting baptized. Because baptism is something that happens for a believer. In Acts 8, we see the pattern all the way through. It says, but when they believed Philip... As he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. You see that pattern over and over. Believe, baptized. Believe, baptized. Believe, baptized. You never see somebody baptized and then later they believe. Okay? I love the story in Acts 16. Paul and Silas have... Uh, shared the gospel in the city of Philippi, and they've caused a riot. They've been beaten, thrown in prison. And in prison, they're singing and praising God at midnight, and suddenly there's an earthquake, and all the prison doors fly open. And the jailer wakes up, and, and when he sees the prison doors open, he assumes all the prisoners have fled. He's responsible for them. If they escape, he gets executed He's ready, trying to preserve his honor. He's just going to fall on his own sword. And so Paul cries out and says, don't harm yourself. We're all still here. He says, don't do that. So the jailer rushes in. He falls trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. Now what that doesn't mean is that if he believes in Jesus, everybody at his house blocks away is also going to be saved too. No, what it means is you believe in Jesus, you'll be saved, and everybody in your household can be saved the same way. They believe in Jesus, they can be saved. And we'll see that's exactly what happens. It says, then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. Now, what a great Father's Day picture. I mean, here's a guy just working, trying to make a living. A tragedy happens at work. He throws himself on the mercy of Jesus Christ and gets saved. Then he brings missionaries home to the house for dinner, and they share the gospel with him, and everybody in his house believes on Jesus. And then they all get baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he'd come to believe in God, he and his whole household. He believed, and all his household believed, and immediately he and all his household were baptized. Baptism is for believers, Colossians 2.12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, 
in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. The words through faith are extremely important there. Paul says when you come up out of that water, signifying being raised with Christ, it's happening through faith. Baptism gets its meaning from the faith that it expresses. So so baptism is for believers only. Number six, baptism is tied to membership in the local church. As you read through the New Testament, being a believer, being baptized, belonging to the body of Christ, and being a member of a local church are all linked together. In fact, when the church started in in one day, uh, 3,000 people repented, believed in Jesus, got baptized, and became the, the first church. I mean, it just all happened in one day. Here with this Philippian jailer, he believes, his household believes, they get baptized, and Paul plops them into the church at Philippi. Okay? This stuff, it's tied together. In our day and culture, we think we can pick these things all apart. We think, well, I'll believe, and then eight years later, maybe I'll get baptized if I feel like it, and maybe I'll join a church, but I won't be baptized, or maybe I'll never join the church because, you know, it's just about me and Jesus. And so we, we, no, in the New Testament, it's all a package deal. You believe, you get baptized, you belong to the body, and you get plugged into a local church. All these theological debates among Christians about whether you, know, you have to be uh, baptized in order to be saved or if you have to be baptized to be a member of a church or whether you have to be a member of a local church, all that theological debating goes away if people just obey Christ. Jesus said, believe, be baptized, you're part of the body, get plugged into a church. And so if you have immediate and full obedience, all the controversies, all the debate, all the issues, all the insecurities, they're moot. Because we've done what Jesus has commanded us to do. We're walking in obedience. That's number seven. Baptism is obedience to Christ's command. The whole issue of baptism is about obedience. You know, it's amazing to me. I have never had anybody who got baptized who said, I wish I wouldn't have done that. I've had lots of people say, I wish I would have done that sooner. I wish I wouldn't have put this off. And and a lot of times they'll they'll say, what a great experience. And they think that that great feeling comes because the water is pleasant and it's a fun, joyful thing and it's, you know, and it's, it, it comes from the experience. No, it comes because that's what obedience to Jesus Christ feels like. Obedience to Christ unlocks the joy in your life. And Christ clearly commands us to baptize people and to be baptized. Failing to be baptized is serious disobedience. It is. It's serious disobedience. And I'd encourage you, if you're a believer in Christ and you've never been baptized by immersion, I'd encourage you to do so. You know, we're doing baptisms right here at the end of the service. This may be a little quick for you. Okay? And I understand that. But, you know, we're going to do it, we do it the third Sunday of every month in every service. And so July 16th and 17th, if you haven't been baptized yet, you, you can get baptized. And I'd encourage you, because Christ gave us the ordinance, the order, the command to be immersed. He also gave us the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Uh, this is our doctrinal statement on the Lord's Supper. 
a time of communion in the presence of God and in fellowship with other believers when the elements of bread and juice representing the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ are taken in remembrance of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Now, what's the origin of the Lord's Supper? Well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have the last supper that Jesus had with his disciples. Uh, It's in their Gospels. And each account describes Jesus blessing the bread, blessing the cup, giving it to his disciples, and saying, this is my body, this is my blood, which is given for you. And Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. And Paul describes that event in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, In remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The historical origin of the Lord's Supper is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself is the origin of this. And he commanded that it be continued from that point on. He ordained it. But he is the focus. He is the content of it. Number two, the believing participants of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is an act for believers. It's an act for the church. It's not an act for unbelievers. In uh, 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says in verse 18, when you come together as a church, this is for the body of Christ. This is for the congregation. This is for the gathering, the followers of Jesus. And Paul says, for anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord, eats and drinks judgment upon himself. And that's a warning, that's a stern warning that he issues to believers about the importance of this event. A believer better recognize that this is the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Well, how much more so somebody who's an unbeliever, who doesn't even understand Jesus, know him, know what's going on. Christians are supposed to take this seriously How much more of a concern is that for an unbeliever? So communion is for believers. So I want to talk about the physical action of the Lord's Supper. It's a very simple act. It's eating bread and drinking the cup. You know, the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, gave thanks, broke it, said, this is is my body, eat it. Takes the cup, blesses it. This is my cup, drink it in remembrance of me. Very simple act. And nothing specified about the kind of bread or the way it's to be broken. We we typically use unleavened bread or crackers or even wafers because we recognize that there's a connection between the Lord's Supper and the Jewish Passover Seder, the Passover meal. That's the last supper that Jesus had with his disciples. And at that meal, you could only have unleavened bread. So it's obvious that's what Jesus used at the first one. But the Bible doesn't give us any any details directly related to the Lord's Supper and what kind of bread we're supposed to use. It just says bread. The only statement about what's in the cup 
is uh, in one verse in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each one have it. It says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And so it's called the fruit of the vine. It doesn't say whether it's grape juice or whether it's wine. And frankly, I don't, I don't think it matters which, which one you use. You know, but what, what we should be concerned about here is, is that we don't use playful substitutes. You know, hot dogs and Cokes around a campfire is not an acceptable way to do communion. Okay? You know, cake and punch is not, you know, that, that's not what we're doing here. The, the, the Lord's Supper is not a playtime, it's not a picnic. It's an event that has serious weight behind it. And so it needs to be bread and a cup. Now, there's nothing in the New Testament about the frequency of the Lord's Supper. Both Jesus and Paul just say, as often as you do this. And so some churches do it weekly in their tradition. Some churches do it quarterly. Some churches do it just at special occasions. At Rockbrook, we do uh, the Lord's Supper in our small groups. And I love doing it that way because, in my mind, that's the way Jesus did it. I mean, he did it on a Thursday night in the upper room of a house with his guy's small group. That's when he did communion. And so I love the fact that we do it in our small groups. We also do it occasionally as a church family, larger church family, at, at maybe on Good Friday or New Year's or our annual membership meeting or Friday night. Last Friday night we had our dream team night and we shared communion together uh, as the church. But we don't do it in our weekend services because it, we want believers to come to our weekend services. If you're here today and you're an unbeliever, uh, did I say believers or unbelievers? Yeah, unbelievers. We want, well, obviously we want believers to come. <laughs> but we also want unbelievers to come to our weekend services. And if you're an unbeliever here today, we are thrilled that you are here. And, and we've crafted this service to help introduce you to Jesus Christ and to tell you who he is and what he's done for you with the hope that you'll believe. And so because this service is designed for unbelievers, we don't do communion. Because we don't want to have a part of the service where we now have to tell our invited unbelieving guests, no, 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 this is not for you. It's like having a party and then you, you know, tell people, some of the guests, well, you know, we're going to do something special over here and you can't do it. Okay? We're not going to do that. So we don't, we don't do it on the weekend. So uh, if you want to observe communion around here, get plugged into a small group. Work your way through the growth track and get on the dream team because that's where, that's where we consistently do communion. So that's the physical action. What's the mental action of the Lord's Supper? Uh, well, the mental action is to focus your mind on Jesus Christ. Do this in remembrance of me. As we do the physical act of eating and drinking, we do the mental act of remembering. We consciously call to mind the person of Jesus Christ and the work that he's done for us on the cross. The fact that he died and rose again that we might be saved. You know, it's not a new age spirituality. There's nothing mystical. There's no mysticism about it. It's rooted in historical fact. Jesus Christ lived. He had a body. He had a heart that pumped blood. He had skin that bled. And he died publicly on a Roman cross in the place of sinners so that people who believe in him can be saved from the wrath of God. And that happened once for all at a moment in time in history. And so the mental act of the Lord's Supper is remembering that event. It's not imagining, it's not dreaming, it's not channeling, it's not going into neutral and emptying your mind. No, it's filling your mind with the memory of Christ. 
It's directing your mind back into history uh, to Jesus and what we know about him and what he did in the Bible. It's bread and cup, body and blood, execution and death. There's a spiritual action of the Lord's Supper too. If it's going to be what Jesus means it to be, it's got to be more than just eating, drinking, and remembering. You know, there's got to be a spiritual aspect of it. And, and that's where the faith comes in. Because it's, it's through faith that we're nourished with the benefits obtained through his death. In, communicate, in communion, we are participating in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Literally, spiritually sharing fellowship in his body and his blood. Experiencing a partnership in his death. When believers eat the bread and drink the cup physically, we do another kind of eating and drinking spiritually. We're taking this stuff into our lives. We take in what happened on the cross. Paul says, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share one loaf. When Jesus died, he shed his blood, he gave his body to purchase for us all the promises of God. Paul says all the promises of God find their yes in him. Every gift of God, the the, the joyful fellowship that we have with God is obtained for us through the blood of God in the body of Jesus Christ. And at the Lord's table, we feast spiritually, by faith, on every spiritual blessing. Number six, because of that, there's a sacred seriousness of the Lord's Supper. And Paul warns us, you don't come to this event with a cavalier, callous, careless attitude. If you do not discern the seriousness of what happened on the cross... He says, you may be a believer, but you may become weak and sick and even lose your life if you don't take the Lord's Supper seriously. And you'll lose your life not because of God's wrath, but because of God's fatherly discipline. I just want to read read this for you, 1 Corinthians 11. Whoever, and here he's talking to believers, whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, You're not trusting and treasuring this as the body and blood of Christ. That person will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And he's not saying examine yourself to determine if you're good. Because you're not good. You're not good enough. Don't examine yourself to determine if you're worthy enough to partake. You're not worthy enough. No, we know that. You examine yourself to see, am I trusting in Jesus Christ? And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body drinks judgment on himself. And then he goes on, he says, that's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Paul just tells the Corinthians, some of you are weak, some of you are sick, some of you have died because you've been disregarding the body and the blood, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying that everybody who dies has done that, but some have. 
And sometimes God will take a believer home before they do more damage here. It's, a, it's, an, it's not an act of judgment. Paul goes on, he says, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. You know, if that happens to those people, they don't go to hell. Believers don't go to hell. But they can be disciplined by God to the point that they lose their life here. Don't take the Lord's Supper lightly. It's one of the most precious gifts that Christ has given to his church. And both of these ordinances have at their core faith and obedience. Faith and obedience. I believe and I get baptized. I believe and I observe the Lord's Supper. I believe and I take the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ very seriously. Let's pray together. If you're here today and you've never placed your faith and trust in Christ, I, I would encourage you right now in this moment just to cry out to God, what must I do to be saved? And the answer is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. God will forgive your sins. He'll bind up your wounds. He'll come into your life. He'll give you the new, eternal, abundant life that he promises to those who believe in Christ. So this is your moment. And maybe you're a believer and for some reason you've never been baptized by immersion. And this is your opportunity to say, God, I'm going to do it. I'm going to clear my calendar. I'm going to plan ahead. I'm going to, I'm going to be here. July 16th, July 17th, I'm going to be obedient. I'm going to publicly express my faith in Jesus Christ. And maybe you're a believer who needs to get plugged into the local church. You need, you need to take the step of membership. You need to belong. And this is the day where you decide, I'm going to go through growth track. And I'm going to get plugged into the church. And I'm going to get plugged into a small group. And I'm going to get on a dream team so that I can walk in fellowship with other believers. And I can enjoy the communion that comes from celebrating the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not by myself, but with other people in the family, in the body. God, we thank you that you love us enough to tell us what to do. God, I pray that we would love you enough to do it. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.